Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Alice. How are you, Ella? Yeah, I'm good. Good to be here in the studio. Yeah. Got my work permit. Yes, feeling very essential at the moment. Yeah, got feeling a very of essential. Under my belt, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're very essential people. I was almost disappointed when I saw so many cars on the road this morning. Like, oh, I guess everyone's essential, not just yeah, me. Yeah, I guess it's not just me then. <laughs> I thought it was just us. But um, we are in the studio live this morning. It's Wednesday, 18th of August. And, right. yeah. and yeah, we've got a bit of a hybrid show of our own this morning. So yeah, it's you and I live in the studio. Um, but we've got Claudia waiting at home, ready to do some live interviews remotely. So. Yeah, so we yeah we will hear from Claudia a little bit later on in the show, and we'll also be hearing from old friend Idwin yeah. that we haven't heard from in a while. But Idwin's put together a interview for this week too, so really looking forward to hearing Idwin's voice on the airwaves again. Yes, it'll be good to mix up the voices again. Absolutely. <laughs> And um, it's been a it's been a really awful week, actually, with what's happening with Afghanistan um, in the news. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's devastating. We're going to cover it on the show, but it's it, I don't know about you, Ella, but it's all that I've can consume been consuming at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same, just refreshing and scrolling through all these updates. But you really have no grasp on the situation at the end of the day. Um, no. Yeah, no, it has been a pretty bad news week all around, really. It's been one of those weeks where it feels like, oh, yeah, all, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, that the restrictions going in further into Melbourne as well, so it almost feels like we're getting more and more isolated. And then you're looking at what's happening around the world, and yeah, without trying okay. to start Wednesday breakfast <laughs> yeah. on too much of a happy note, it's really, yeah, it's 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 a really scary devastating place at the moment i mean in in afghanistan but it's yeah all we can do is try and stay up to date and listen to grassroots voices when we see them and try and listen to the right people um talk yeah about this yeah hopefully well guests today can shed some more light on the situation absolutely um and who do you have lined up for us to speak to today alice well if we if we go through what we've got lined up for the show today so at 7.15, we hear from Idwin, who is going to speak to Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest, a grassroots group dedicated to protecting the central highlands of Victoria from logging to discuss the progress in the case and the growing number of community groups taking Vic's Forest to court. Um, our Edwin speaks to Sue and Sue's in her garden, so you also get these like beautiful sounds of birds in the background. She's got a little dog next to her, so... You're going to get transported to Sue's garden oh, at 7.15. I know, A nice, nice way to start the morning. Yeah. 
And then at 7.30, Claudia will be talking, well, she'll be live at home, but speaking with Tom Mohon about a fabulous new children's museum being built in Sandringham, Melbourne. The museum is the brainchild of Tom and his wife, Billy, and follows the success of the Geelong Museum of Art and Play, which opened last year. And then at 7.45, we're going to be speaking to Deanna Saeed, a good friend of 3CRs and CEO of the Australian Museum, uh, sorry, Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. And she joins us to talk about the Afghan diaspora following the devastating takeover of the Taliban. So we're going to be speaking a little bit about the community communities really around the world who are um who are afghan and looking at what's happening to their home country and also how it is going to be affecting women and then at 8 a.m claudia speaks with professor brett hayes from the university of new south wales we'll get my words right <laughs> one day um about the effects of lockdown on memory and cognitive capacity and then at 8 <laughs> 15 <laughs> there's still more um, we speak to Azadar Raz Mohammed from the University of Melbourne following her article in the conversation called um, As the Taliban Returns, 20 Years of Progress for Women Looks to Disappear Overnight. And so we're going to follow on that conversation from Diana with Azadar about how the Taliban takeover is going to affect women and girls in Afghanistan. And we're also going to speak to Azadar about the way that the West has just turned to the to the other side and is denying help and is likely to ignore this situation yeah so it's a busy show yep sorry to leave the rundown all the us you're no, doing so that's... well i didn't want to jump in there <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, sorry i was just like taking over there but um yeah it's busy excellent well why don't we get started with a song and yeah stay with us so around quarter past seven we'll be hearing from idwin and this is Thelma Plum around here. I'm gonna keep on walking Cause I've been walking for days And there are blisters on my feet And they turn to crazy It's like I'm walking through a maze Up my own Cause running from something Just to turn around and find You were running from yourself All the time Cause everything that once felt real Does not feel anymore Cause everything that once felt real Does not feel anymore Around here 
Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events. And learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Just a Leroy coming. 
fantasize of innocence, of truth, and lies. As she looks at it, it's gone by. Oh, how it makes her cry. Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why. Tell me why do the children cry, cry? Ooh. Oh. Thank you. That was why from Kutcher Edwards. And now over to Idwin. Good morning. I'm Idwin. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Today, we are speaking to Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest about their ongoing efforts to protect Victoria's bush from logging. Notably, today we'll be discussing uh, the group's recent success in court and the growing number of anti-logging cases in Victoria. Good morning, Sue. Hi, Edwin. Sue, so, so last time we spoke to you, um, or the first time we spoke to you was July 2019, um, after Friends of the Forest had just spent months of protesting against plans to log in your area, which is the King Lake Forest, an hour north out from Melbourne. Since that time, we've been checking in every now and again. Uh, you guys have managed to secure a few injunctions, rally the community, and also be part of the increasing number of court cases that are being launched against thick forests on the basis of breaching of environmental protection laws. So could you catch us up with where you're at? Okay, so... 2019 seems like uh, forever away. Um, it's amazing that it's only two years away. I'm still amazed at what we've done in that time. Um, we've continued to operate as, as a community group um, looking after our forests. So um, doing community information sessions and forest tours, uh, nighttime forest tours, looking for greater gliders, um, writing submissions to government relating to like Wildlife Act and various other forest uh, policies. Um, and on top of all that, started three legal cases against thick forests. Wow. So, and, and breaking down these three, uh, sorry, these three court cases, could you just walk us through what you've managed to achieve and where you're at with that? Yes. Yeah, so the first case was, we call it the screening case or the roads and tracks case. And... Um, and we've managed to achieve an injunction. So Vic Forest is restricted from logging within 20 metres of any road or track in the Central Highlands. And the Central Highlands covers the area from, from Wandong, uh, Wallen, across to like the Thompson catchment and from Nuji right up to Eildon. So it's a, it's a very wide area. Um, that's, that's probably protected about 100 hectares in the last year. Important hundred hectares because they are, you know, the, the trees that are beside the roads and tracks that, that we visit and, and also linear corridors for animals. The other two cases, um, we've managed to achieve an injunction. So Vic Forest is restricted from logging in 36 forest areas, and that covers about a thousand hectares in uh, the third case. And the second case we've uh, restricted logging in about 700 hectares in, in a slightly different way, but it, it's still restricted. 
And these injunctions, that court case is due to be heard at the end of this year, is that correct? Yeah, the first court case is going to be heard in November. Um, and the second court case has actually been heard. That was heard in February this year. We just we don't have a decision on that yet, though. And the third court case has just started. Gotcha. Yeah. So that, that's in, the core argument of your cases for this um, rests on these two main ideas of one hidden from view, or I should say the screening case, as you referred to it a minute ago, mm. and also fire management and fire management protection laws. Could you walk us through how these arguments work with the with these three cases that you're working on? Yeah, so logging is uh, governed or regulated by the Code of Timber Production 2014. And in that code are various clauses, some relating to protection of wildlife and some relating to protection of amenity. And um, one of those clauses uh, says that Vic Forest can't log, um, must screen timber harvesting from view with a 20 metre buffer. Uh, there is The clause is a bit longer than that. Uh, but we interpret it that to mean that they can't log within 20 metres of a road or track and um, and they, they must screen their logging from view. Uh, the Department of Environment interpret it in a different way. And so when we wrote to the Department of Environment about this, they said, no, we're interpreting this in a different way. So we ended up taking it to court. And that's what essentially what the judge is going to determine how, how to interpret that clause. The second and third case rely on a clause that limits logging in bush in, in fire management zones. And in particular, we um, we're focused on the bushfire moderation zones, which were uh, fire management zones are placed on public land. There's four different types of fire management zones depending on how close that bit of forest is to community and assets. And the bushfire moderation zones are those zones that are quite close to community and assets. And in those zones, the government seeks to slow the progress of fire and, and reduce its intensity. So it's managed in that way. And there are certain restrictions on logging because it's a a certain fire management zone. And these two, I mean, these two clauses, it's quite it's quite a stroke of ingeniousness because I know that you identified, for example, the screening one in regards to King Lake Forest specifically with your first case. And then you've been able to sort of extend them to these 36 coops, which is a massive achievement. The other thing I was reading through your case, and I, I wanted to ask you about, you guys sought an order requiring Vic Forest to give you, give 21 days of notice of any intention to harvest in a coop in any bushfire moderation zone. So could I get just a little bit of context on that and what the ruling was on that front? Yes, so we as a group, King Lake um, put in breach reports uh, that's that you know determine go to areas in the forest and and um, uh, speak to the, gov the, the government about or to the Department of Environment about what Vic Forest are doing in certain areas um, and we write to the government um, we have forest tours etc and all of our activity is in the central highlands in this latest case we wanted um, not only to restrict logging in the central highlands but to ask Vic Forest to not log in the entire Victoria in any bushfire moderation zone the judge decided that because we don't 
do activities in other areas of Victoria. Uh, we don't have legal standing for other areas of Victoria. So she denied that request. Right. We would hope that Vic Forest would not log in, you know, bushfire moderation zones in other areas of the state while, while the uh, case has been run, but um, it, that's up to them. So running alongside the case, this case has been the um, ongoing Friends of the Leadbeater's Possum legal case. So in 2020, Friends of the Leadbeater Possum won a case in the federal court, which ruled that logging in 66 coops in Victoria's central highlands was in breach of Victorian logging laws. And the significance of this case was quite um, intense. I know 3CR has been covering it, but it set a, basically it set a federal precedent of applying federal threatened species protection laws to state logging industry, as well as basically doing a massive slap on the wrist to Vic Forest for breaching a whole lot of state-based environmental laws as well. Now, the federal ruling was overturned over this year. Um, and what happened is Vic Forest had appealed the decision on 31 grounds and was successful on one of these, which basically was the ruling. The ruling found that even conducted in habitat critical to survival of wildlife are facing a high risk of extinction and in breach of state law, Vic Forest logging operations are still exempt from federal environmental law under regional forest agreements. But Sue, we've been talking about this, this case and how it slots into, you know, your what you guys are doing and the fact that even though it was overturned on this one account earlier this year, there's still a lot of precedent set for you in your case. Could you walk us through how the case has influenced what you guys are doing? Yeah, well, the the state logging laws are, are in the jurisdiction of the state courts, hmm. but in federal court, they, they considered whether Vic Forest were adhering to the state laws because it was part of the process of, of, you know, asking whether there would be exemption to federal environment laws and, and part of the process of, of determining whether Vic Forest was acting in accord with the regional forest agreement. So they looked at whether Vic Forest was adhering to the state laws or not. And they found that in many cases, Vic Forest wasn't adhering to the state laws. We would have hoped coming from that, that Vic Forest would modify its behaviour, even though it doesn't have to. It's a federal court. It doesn't have jurisdiction over Vic Forest. But um, you know, while the RFAs um, are in place, but what happened was Vic Forest ignored the federal interpretation of those state laws and continued, for example, it continued to log right up to roads and tracks, even though the, fed, the federal judge determined that to be illegal in those particular coops that um, it looked at. So we were sort of, I guess, quite confident that in our interpretation of, of the clause, because it was the same as the federal judge's interpretation of the clause. So uh, I, I guess that confidence helped us, you know, it, start this legal process, which is a, a very big process, uh, quite scary, um, a hell of a lot of work involved. and. Um, and yeah, it's it, it got us started, I guess. And I must say, much appreciation to friends of ladies of you know and, and EJA for going Environment Justice Australia for going you know through that very and long that's illegal been a, procedure. Yeah, this has been a big commentary as it's been um I think multiple times referred to as a David Goliath battle in all of these cases where it's small community groups going up against Vic Forest, which is a private state business. So. It's amazing to start to see that this coalition of groups that are forming. And that kind of brings me to this next point, which is the fact that, you know, at the time of us recording, now I thought there were eight, you corrected me the other day, there's nine 
court cases initiated by grassroots community groups um, against non-compliance of Vic forests. Do you think we're starting to see traction in the courts with the progress we're making? I think that we continue to move, the community groups continue to move Vic Forest on and from uh, various areas where, where we believe that they're breaking the law and, and, the, and injunctions are, are sought and achieved. Vic Forest then uh, give themselves other areas of forest to go to. But every time we move them on, another group pops up and moves them on from another place and another group pops up and moves them on from another place. And it, it's, it's really providing evidence that this, this logging of native forest, of our state forests by our state government, is just not socially acceptable. And, um, you know, the latest group that have, have just started that legal case uh, is a group of farmers and um, you know they don't consider themselves environmentalists or conservationists or they weren't essentially a an environmental group they were they're a group of farmers that uh, were had had been for some time working on land care and and planting their 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 farms with with corridors particularly to connect areas of the Stresleki koalas and um and were shocked to find that the small area of forest in amongst farmland was being logged and, and it seemed to sort of be a waste of their time. Um, you know, it, it seemed to derail all the work that they had done. So, um, you know, the different groups of different, different groups of people are uh, getting involved in, in really questioning whether this, this logging essentially for paper is, is the right thing to do. And, and, and especially given that we've got such an incredible plantation um, industry in Victoria, uh, we export millions of tonnes of, of um, plantation wood every year. And, um, you know, we could easily move that to, um, uh, to the paper mill in, in Maryvale. We don't have a shortage of wood for the paper, paper mill. It's just that for some reason, the government chooses to use our native forest rather than plantation. And the final thing I wanted to end this interview on is just, you know, what are the next steps for King Lake Forest and, and what should people be tuning into? We will continue to run forest uh, tours and uh, get people into the forest. Uh, we'll continue to raise funds, I guess, because these cases are quite expensive. Um, we're very appreciative to Jonathan Corman, our barrister, who's um, and, and to... Uh, Kwaban Alabi, who's our, our lawyer, uh, but despite um, the very generous um, provision of work by them, uh, we still have to pay a lot of legal fees. So I guess we, we're still running um, those kind of campaigns. Yeah, I think we'll work pretty heavily on the review of the code. At the moment, uh, the, uh, the government has just decided to change the logging laws that we're using for our court case and most of the clauses that we use in our court cases or all the groups have used you know various clauses in the court cases and most of those clauses are going to be removed from the new logging laws or modified so um, it, it's really derailed it will derail a lot of our cases but um, we'll just continue to work and you know we'll <laughs> It seems to be that the evidence is that Vic Forest seem to um, have 
have to break laws and there is going to be some laws left and um, uh, we'll just continue to, to look at the clauses and continue to do what we can do. But it's it's sort of, it, you have to continue on all fronts. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty involved. Absolutely. And so uh, people can follow you on, I believe, Facebook and also you guys have a website. I'll uh, provide a link on today's rundown for anyone who is interested in getting involved. And thank you so much, Sue, for joining us and giving us that update. Thanks, Idwin, for having, having me on. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. I'm Claudia and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. A new children's museum dedicated to learning through play is coming to Melbourne. MOPA, or the Museum of Play and Art, is the second dedicated children's museum developed by Tom Mann and Billy Georgeff and will be located in the beachside suburb of Melbourne's Sandringham. Tom is here to tell us more about the project. Hi, Tom. Claudia, lovely to meet you. Okay. This is such an exciting project. You've got 2,500 square metres of space in Sandringham. Can you tell us what the vision is? <laughs> uh, great question. Um, the, the vision really uh has been pretty consistent since we started the uh, the build of the first project. You know, things haven't shifted from a vision perspective, um, how we execute and exactly um, you know, what we do in these beautiful spaces um, is always evolving, of course. Uh, but the, the vision really for, for MOPA uh, is to create a space, um, as you've quite duly noted, that is about learning through play. And so our spaces have uh, a huge range of experiences and activations for children to enjoy. Um, but part of that, that vision is also to create spaces that are wonderful and enjoyable for families as well. And um, that's a big component of, of you know, what we believe in, that um, you know, families uh, you know, have such rich, enjoyable times when they play together. Um, and to enable the best family experience, now our museums are really uh, built specifically for the whole family, not just for the children. So, you know, they're, they're a mature space um, that is in, as enjoyable uh, for the adults as it is for the kids. I'm looking forward to it already and it's not <laughs> even up. <laughs> so it's been described um, as a sensory and interactive and immersive space. Can you tell us about some of the specific experiences that will be there, perhaps based on uh, what's already there in your Geelong site and what makes it different to other play spaces? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, look, we, we believe um, firmly in, um, as I've said, that the role that play-based learning has in the early learning uh, the journey that, that children go through in the early learning years. Uh, but we also believe um, very strongly that the, the skills uh, developed um, in the creative landscape, you know, we have these, these principles in school that we know of as the STEM-based learning principles, science, technology, engineering and math. But there's a little A creeping in there that, um, that causes us to talk about STEM as now STEAM, which we love because that's what um, you know, MOPA is really all about, is that little A that's creeping in. So um, the experiences uh, and activations are all based on play-based learning, but also very creative and artful. 
So a couple of examples that um, that uh, you know, Mopar in Geelong has become famous for that that we just uh, that we love. Uh, one is that we we've uh, found ourselves a beautiful a Volkswagen, uh, a real Beetle. Uh, of course, they've they've stopped production of these these wonderful vehicles. Not a great vehicle to own, mind you, <laughs> but a fantastic one uh, for the kids to paint. So we've we've parked a, a Beetle in the backyard, um, and we slop some paint on that car every day. And of course, over time, the paint has built up on our Volkswagen in Geelong, um, and it's it's just a, an amazing uh, opportunity to be artful and creative. Um, but also to push children outside their comfort zones to to enhance or grow their understanding of what art is and what art can be. So we can still use what we call the you know traditional means with with brushes and texture and you know we scratch into the car, which of course you wouldn't do at home either. But all sorts of funny um, and enjoyable uh, kind of traditional. Um, art applied to a very non-traditional canvas, which is, of course, this this Volkswagen car. Um, and, so that's and not a real task-based. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's free reign, you know. And some kids will kind of get in there and start painting inside the wheel arches, and other children will paint their name across the side of the car and try and lay claim until the next kid comes along and paints over the top. But look, that's um that's an example, and you'll see if you if you're on Google or you're researching about coming to Mopi, you'll see a lot of um the art car pop up because it is a, a real crowd pleaser. Mum and Dad get in there too sometimes, <laughs> which is good fun. Uh, another example is that we have a traditional art wall, you know, just like you'd see at a gallery, uh, but the types of art that are on our wall, um, we encourage the children to immerse themselves in, to touch and feel and interact with. So one of our screens, one of our our big picture frames um, uh, has a special, some new technologies, 3D um, uh, camera, an infrared camera that senses body movement and distance from the artwork. And the artwork will actually change and shift according to my actions in front of it. Um, again, taking this traditional notion um, of art on a wall, but encouraging children to interact with it and create their own art through their own body's movements. And I believe you have a very innovative climbing space as well down at Geelong, the Sun City and Urban Climbing Space in a museum. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, that's been a, um, again a real a real pleaser. It's um, you know we we when we set out to build uh, a space that was uh, that encouraged learning through play, there were a few really fundamental parts about how we approached that that challenge um, that I think have. Um, uh, that have resulted in a pretty pretty amazing space. And that the city is a great example of that in play. So we know that children love climbing. Um, as they develop their motor skills, both, both their, their, their gross motor skills, the bigger movements um, and their fine motor skills, they're climbing and, and feeling confident in a comfortable and soft space as a big part of that. And that's why you'll see at a typical play centre, of course, we've got lots of um, uh, what they call soft play. Now, that's great, but... Um, but also at that age, uh, there's a lot of cognitive development going on, which is really interesting. And that has to do with what we call a sense of agency is one of the, the, the pillars of that development. So a sense of agency really has to do with understanding how uh, I'm independent from you and we're, we're different people and, um, and my actions um, can create outcomes uh, independent of others. That's how I interact with the space and the people around me. 
So when we brought uh, our, our understanding of the cognitive development into this traditional soft play space that we knew was going to be heaps of fun, um, we've designed a city that the children can uh, climb into. That's that's what they're you know that's what appeals to them is to get into this space and get into these buildings that look like a city. But then uh, what they'll do is quickly find themselves um, uh, separated, uh, only by a thin wall, of course, but separated from their um, from their carer or adults. Which you know in this this day and age, uh, it's 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 interesting to watch mum and child be separated for a minute. Um, just visually and, and to see their response and how they react. And so the, the children will walk through this city, notice that they're separated a little bit, but then go and find a window. And the, the higher they climb in the city, the more windows and the more reward they'll find to reconnect with their adult. And so what we're really doing for both the adult, which is fun, but also for the child, it's encouraging that, that degree of separation, which is still very safe uh, and natural. So, uh, you know, we've built these cognitive development, the psychological development of, of children, and in fact, in this case, parents, uh, into something that is playful and the kids want to interact with to develop their physical and, uh, and of course, their, their cognitive uh, skills as well at the same time. How's that one been received uh, in your existing museum? Uh, look, it's a, it's, it's um it's a real pleaser. It's uh it's something that the kids just run to. I, I think um you know a lot of what we've done at Moper too. You know you you um you take a, a again a traditional something like um something like a climbing frame. And of course we know that kids just it, it just has this this enormous appeal. You know I can vanish into that little hole there and um it's like a cubby. So so that part of it appeals to the child, but. Um, my incredible wife uh, and, um, <laughs> and and fellow museum director uh, has a, a background in creative, 20, 20 years plus in the creative industries. And so what she's overlaid to um, is she's, she's created um, spaces that, that are so visually appealing um, and, and often people will come into the space at Mopra here in Geelong um, and, you know, you feel really... Uh, uh, embraced by the space you feel very comfortable and some people don't even know why but it's because you know the color palette is just incredible and the way that if you stand in the middle of the museum and you slowly turn around the way that the color palette evolves you know just as you as you walk around the room is pretty incredible and the city's a great example because it is we call it sunset city it's it's literally very specific pantones picked from a real sunset and mm. and at first you might not realize that that's the case but that's why we call it Sunset City as a bit of a cue. So it's been received well by the kids. They'll run in and have a great time. But the parents kind of stand there and think, that's just a you know, beautiful structure. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been um, received exceptionally well. And you mentioned uh, your wife and co-director, Billy, um, heavily involved in the creative side. Can you tell us um, a bit about the genesis for this project? Because uh, it's it's come from the two of you, and uh, how did it how did it start? Yeah, it, uh, it's a, a I think it's a pretty typical, but also atypical story about you know uh, about starting something new. Um, my wife and I uh, were doing some travelling with our children and visiting parts of the world where this this kind of this notion of children's museums is more developed and mature. And so um, for the listeners that might have been uh, lucky enough to have visited parts of the world before this nasty pandemic, um, 
places like uh, the US um, in particular, very, very developed. You, know, you, you can hardly go to one of the major cities in uh, the US without finding half a dozen children's museums. Uh, and so we were doing some travel and the kids were constantly asking us to go to the, the children's museum. Uh, there's a new one, for example, even in Rome. And um, uh, there's plenty through uh, different parts of uh, Southeast Asia. Singapore's fantastic. Uh, we went to a couple in Hong Kong. Um, even Dubai has uh, a couple now. So um, parts of the world had, had really cottoned on to play-based learning um, and had developed these, these um, what are really um, such fundamental pieces of, of the community. They're like a community centre almost in the way that the community adopts them and become um, yeah, addicted to, to visiting their local children's museum. Uh, and so, you know, coming home uh, and uh, at that time, you know, we'd, we'd quit our jobs to do some travel. So when we got home uh, and we were kind of butting heads about what we'd do next with our lives and the kids were in the background chirping in our ear, <laughs> mum and dad, can we go to a children's museum? We miss the children's museums. Um, it was a pretty wonderful point of inflection where we realised that um, perhaps that was our calling. Well, takes uh, two great parents to take uh, that uh, plea from the children and then actually <laughs> say, okay, we're going to make one, kids. But uh, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, I am in awe of your uh, inspiration and uh, dedication to this and incredibly excited to see one opening in Melbourne, hopefully by Christmas, you said. So thanks very much, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That was Tom Mann, co-director of the Museum of Play and Art, talking about an exciting interactive children's museum coming to metropolitan Melbourne, hopefully by the end of the year, but keep watching this space. And you can still visit the Geelong Museum if you're lucky enough to live regionally in Victoria. Uh, the website is www.museumofplayandart, all one word, .com.au. I'm Claudia. We've been talking with Tom and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast.
And that was Yothu Yindi with World Turning. And now we are going to speak to Deanna Saeed, CEO from the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, about what is happening in Afghanistan right now and the communities in Australia um, watching this unfold. Deanna, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Alice. Yeah, no worries. And watching these events happen in Afghanistan as an Afghan yourself so far away must be incredibly painful. Um, and I just wonder how how is the diaspora community right now? Look, I can't speak on behalf of everyone and obviously experiences are varied across the board, but I think, you know, it's pretty... Um, it's pretty heartbreaking and um, we're all just reeling from it and sort of watching on in disbelief Mm. that things have happened at such a rapid pace. We're all just watching with bated breath about what could happen, what's going to happen, you know, frantically reaching out to friends and family, wanting to make sure people are okay, that they have their immediate needs, met, um, what the danger is exactly, how we can support and help. I think that's the the hardest thing for us is just feeling so far away, so helpless and just really overwhelmed and, and kind of numb as well. Mm. And what are some of those immediate needs that need to be met with people right now on the ground in Afghanistan? Mm. Yeah, look, we're, it's sort of multifaceted. Um, you know, people just don't know what to necessarily expect. Um, you know, the, the sort of representations that are being made by the, um, the Taliban and the spokesperson and then, um, you know, what, what, what that would actually allay fears on the ground. Are people actually like what's the day to day? Are people allowed to go to work? Are people allowed to resume normal, normal life? Just mm. because the bakeries have reopened in Kabul, does that mean that, like, what what are those like basic necessities? Are the banks reopening, the airport still, you know, um, closed. There's still a lot of things, but the immediate issues are those people who have been internally displaced, who have fled the provinces for safety in Kabul still aren't being housed. Humanitarian needs are beyond words right now. People don't have basic needs. Uh, and, and how do we actually get to them, get those needs to them with borders closing, you know, trade routes sort of have slowed down incredibly, you know, those sorts of things. Like I just can't even fathom and I don't know even the extent of what people's needs are yet because it was just slowly getting information trickling out. And I just saw this morning that Taliban leaders have urged people to trust them. They have said, they've come out and said lots of different things, but what, I mean, what does this mean for for women and girls And, and, and what do people on the ground, I mean, do people trust them at all? Yeah. Look, you know, if we talk about trust in and of itself as a concept, it, it's something that, um, you know, needs to be earned. 
it's a it's an illusory notion, um, and all we have right now is to base it on what has been shown to date, and it's like there there is no indicators that this Taliban is any different to what was um, in place during the 90s. If anything, people are just stating that it's the Taliban 2.0, that it's come back with more support, more backing from international um, sort of neighbours, more um, technology at their at their disposal. They've come back with a social media um, communications spokesperson. Um, you know, it's like... The, what is it? The wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. It's. I just don't. No, none of us in the diaspora, and I. I. You know, I can't speak on behalf of everyone in Afghanistan right now, but I don't trust that they have changed already. You know what we've seen about representations that were made in Doha during so-called peace talks in and of itself. If people really felt that the Taliban had changed that they were different and were going to come back and actually put in place a government with broad-based appeal where people felt that their rights were going to be enshrined, do you honestly think that the president himself would have fled under those conditions? That the, the horrendous sort of footage that we were seeing of people with the desperation in the air to get on mm. those last flights out of Kabul would have been, would have been happening... We have to really sort of break it down to like the fear that people are experiencing. Would that level of fear really be there if they trusted the representations being made by the Taliban, that they were actually going to come in and be a rights-based, somehow, you know, legitimate um, governing power? And I don't think so, frankly. Hey, Deanna Ella here. Um, as you and Alice were saying, yeah, no one's really buying these claims from the Taliban that they've changed in the past 20 years. Um, and they haven't been in rule for 20 years, but there are a lot of regions in Afghanistan that have been under Taliban rule for much longer and give us a more recent example. Um, what can these regions tell us about life under Taliban rule? Yeah, so it's it's a complicated um a sentiment, you know, in terms of um, talking through sort of the regional provinces and then Kabul, which is, you know, the government that was very much um, propped up and backed by the US and allied coalition forces, you know, it's, it's, I think it's really um, important, and thank you for your question, it's to, um, to understand that as an Afghan, the diaspora community, we can hold a multifaceted amount of feelings in the same way that we don't necessarily want to um, sort of feed into these narratives that are going around, um, you know, around like, well, it was a Western intervention and now the Taliban who are Afghans are, are in power, um, you know, and they've built um, grassroots support from Afghans that gives them legitimacy. The thing is, is that, you know, we can hold... The fact that, you know, we didn't want Western intervention in one sentiment is the fact that we don't want an, a, a regime like the Taliban who have actively shown that they target minority groups, that they will curtail rights and basic freedoms for women, children and others. Um, in the in the regional centres, it was not so much um, Taliban. It was, it's a very tribal system. Um, there's, there's a lot of... They call them warlords. 
Um, I'm just always hesitant to use these, this framing that um, sort of Western media likes to put on. Afghanistan's always been sort of a very tribal country, but quite secular, um, very progressive back in the... If you look at the history, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, so it, it's a little bit difficult to to, to to that question in and of itself. Um, but for the most part, um, the, the government itself was 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 controlling the country from Kabul essentially. So, um, and I never lived under Taliban rule, so I can't really speak on those who who have. Mm. And can you give us a, a light, just sort of shine a light on what the future might look like for women and girls? We can only go on precedence, right? Um, and we'll be watching mm-hmm. and waiting to see what happens. I'm always a bit reticent um, in these early days to sort of have any hope of, of there being um, significant shift or change. The international community is still there. People are still watching right now. What I worry about is when the media attention shifts again, when Afghanistan and the people get forgotten, when, God forbid, another you know situation happens. They love to report on the hardships and the um, sort of, you know, the trauma of Afghans. And we're always talked about through that lens. Mm-hmm. So I do worry about so many minority groups um, in Afghanistan right now, particularly women, though, absolutely. I worry about their ability to work. I worry about their ability to leave their house without a mahram, which is a male guardian. I worry about, um, you know, young women um, in, being forced into marriages against their will and consent. I worry about um, so many things. I mean, I could spend the whole whole hour just talking about all the minority groups that I worry about that are at risk. But women in not themselves um, are a huge, are hugely at risk. And what should the government in Australia be doing right now? And why does Australia need to step up to the plate and do good by Afghans? Yeah, so there is um, a lot actually. And for all the listeners um, of your show, I think it's important to sort of understand the role and the responsibility. So, and not to get um, caught up in, you know, well, why should we accept refugees and all of these narratives that have been built up over decades of dehumanising language, the militarisation of our sort of national security and that rhetoric that the government loves to sort of spin. Mm-hmm. The, pub- the What's happening right now is that we were involved in over two decades of um, intervention as part of the US-led coalition forces in Afghanistan. What that means is that, you know, we were there on the ground, we were there um, very actively involved. What has come to light since um, November 2020 was that there was the Brereton Report, if people recall. I know people have very short memories yeah. <laughs> during COVID. We're all going through so much and our collective traumas aren't to be sort of dismissed either. But there were allegations very damning in the Brereton report and that was the redacted version Mm -hmm. that we were able to access. And no one to date has been held account from the Australian Defence Forces for those allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan. Second to that, we owe the Australians, the Afghans, 
um, because we also were there, we were engaged with, with them, they supported the Allied forces. Um, and right now it is about humanity, a moral predicament to support and give a once-off humanitarian intake of 20,000 people of Afghans, those most at risk. We've done it before. We did it with the Syrians. We've done it with the Kosovars, East Timorese, the Vietnamese before them. We have precedence in this country of doing the right thing when history is, is requires it. So at the moment, we are calling for that 20,000 intake under the humanitarian um, sort of visa track. And that is in addition to our humanitarian intake that we have already. Um, and that, that's a once-off. Um, and for those to be expedited and there to be a, a process um, around, you know, sort of getting that assistance out immediately. Mm-hmm. Second to that, we really need to um, make sure that there's a there's a um, group of Afghans here in Australia right now who have been languishing and living in limbo over the last seven or eight years um, on temporary protection visas. They need to be granted permanent protection and have a pathway to permanent residency immediately. These people are in our communities right now, and they, you know, saying that they are, you know, won't be returned or they don't have to worry about going back to Afghanistan for the immediate future. That's not good enough. Mm. They need they need to have certainty about their future. Um, and beyond that, you know, there's a lot of other calls um, around family reunification, people who are being, they have been processed, but they just haven't come to Australia. We're talking about partners, children of people here in Australia um, and other family members. They need to have their visas expedited. They've already been processed. And then the resettlement of refugees who are currently in Indonesia who also are awaiting arrival here in Australia. They also need to be given given priority. So there's a lot there and yeah. the pressure is mounting. People from broad-based communities all throughout Australia have been watching this footage unfolding and everyone is collectively just absolutely in shock and heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we are coming up to to rounding off this segment, but I just think it's really important to give people at home um, just some guidance on on what they can do, and and that they aren't they aren't necessarily hopeless or helpless in this. And and if you're sitting in Melbourne now listening to this and you want to do something, what might be a good step to try and um, to to encourage good to come out of this situation? Yes, I would encourage everyone to be following Afghans right now. So people in the Afghan community in the diaspora, the Victoria has the largest amount of Afghans in Australia. Mm. We are living amongst you. We are journalists and lawyers and doctors and shopkeepers and organisers and community leaders. And you know, not to take one view on what's going on in Afghanistan, what you're seeing in the kind of in the current Western media um, that is very much portraying Afghans as, um, you know, people who are at fault for our own oppression, yeah. that we somehow, um, you know, abandoned ship. We have all this money that's being invested and, and we weren't, you know, good enough to sort of stand up against the Taliban. This is really harmful and very reductive as narratives. And I think right now, you know, there's a lot of blame being gone around, a lot of blame shifting onto the Afghans from everyone. Um, but right now, it's about the people. 
we have suffered throughout all of this and that is the priority message that needs to come through. So please follow Afghan voices, follow Afghan journalists, follow Afghan community leaders, amplify our voices, centre our experiences and from that you'll see that we're sharing really reputable fundraisers, we're sharing um, actions to your MPs, we're sharing open letters and we're sharing our opinion pieces in the media, which is actually showcasing the diversity of experiences of Afghans. We're sharing what we actually want to see right now um, and making sure that, you know, if you guys are um, seeing political pundits or panels are being set up or events, but making sure that Afghans are included, Afghan voices are centred, and that our narrative um, is always front of mind. Thank you so much, Diana, for joining us today. And, um, yeah, we hope to speak to you soon, and we're going to make sure to broadcast as much about what is happening in Afghanistan with Afghan voices. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again. Thank you. No problem. And that was Diana Saeed, CEO of Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. And stay with us. Next up, Claudia will be speaking with Professor Brett Hayes about the effect of lockdown on memory and cognition. the Pacific Ocean I would have swim all them seas to see you smile to see you happy I guess you did when I saw she made you happy Help me now 
try to run in fast But your speed controlled me in a direction I didn't wanna go It was just like that In the blink of an eye My world came crashing down, down, down I guess you So she made you happy Blue moon Those bright stars, yeah Black sea It was hard To swim But I drowned, yeah someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Frustrated by life, feel like you're messed up in your first and being left condemned to strife, like you're living it twice, being punished with double jeopardy, not understanding that people can go through this and not let it be better. We gotta try and break the cycle of pain. Know it's tough, but inside we got the power to change. Avoid the showers of rain, dodge the storms you can make. Your attitude to carry and pessimistic, better to be belated, ecstatic and happy. Have we dealt with bad things in our mind? Answers yes, positives outweigh the perils of crime. Let me define what I'm feeling with these uplifting words, empowering those down and out. 
what a motivational verse Could it get worse? Of course it could become nothing but stress When I'm depressed, employ rhyme and get the steam off my chest In fact, I've been blessed with the talent and I'll use it One thing I value most in this world is my music So if you're feeling down and you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I can give you is get up You only live once, so make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad, yeah If you're feeling down, you're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I can give you is get up You only live once, so make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad, yeah I believe in a world full of happiness I'd like to live in a place without having a stress So if you've been dealt some bad cards in life Is it suggesting best you grab your pen and pad to write Whatever you're feeling with uplifting words And this could go two ways, either better or worse And maybe I've been cursed by a spell to speak my mind Instead of being violent I unleash my fury on a rhyme And over periods of time my outlook changes Makes me able to identify the maximal dangers I'll stay away from strangers, hurry situations Surround myself with good people Those that I've known for ages Don't self-mutilate with phrases I medicate with music Before my temperament escalates Work a verse to defuse it Whenever I'm about to lose it I'm gonna weigh up my options And make the right decisions I don't need bad choices on my conscience If you're feeling down You're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I could give you Is get up You only live once So make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good Ain't always bad, yo So if you're feeling down You're lying in bed stuck The only advice that I could give you was get up You only live once So make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good Ain't always bad, yo Had the inspiration from greats like Muhammad Ali He too went to prison, was eventually free I employed different thinking and news a new scheme A firm believer in reality, it's good to be a dreamer Yeah, goals can be accomplished if we want it to happen So I don't just think it, I live it, I regularly imagine My actions begin sad around out loud And the wisdoms of that negative behaviour That won't help me go to distance in the long run Better to defuse situations Instead of volatility, use communication and patience Yeah, it's hard at the start, but the end result Results are worth you gotta start somewhere and it helps no one nobody's perfect if I stay on the right track I'll know I'll persevere and react in the right way instead of wrongly to fear cause these days for me violence be the last resort any man can throw a punch it takes a real man to talk but if you're feeling bound and you're lying in bed stuck the only advice that I could give you is get up you only live once so make the most of what you have and just remember that what isn't good ain't always bad yo so if you're feeling down you're lying in bed stuck the only advice that I can give you is get up You only live once So make the most of what you have And just remember that what isn't good Ain't always bad, you Yeah! You're listening to 3CR. I'm Ella. And my apologies for the abrupt intermission there. Um, as I said earlier, we are trying our first remote live broadcasting on Wednesday breakfast. So we had one success, but a little less sound trouble with the second one. Um, so, yeah, we're going to try and speak with Brett Hayes next week, seeing as we had such a jam-packed show. So we'll be excited to hear from him next week. Uh, but in the meantime, over to you, Alice. Thanks, Ella. And now we're going to speak to Azada Raz Mohammed about her article in The Conversation, which was named um, as the Taliban returns, 20 years of progress for women look set to disappear overnight. And this is obviously a reflection on the Taliban taking control of Afghanistan, 
The streets of Kabul were emptied of women on Monday, the first full day of Taliban rule across Afghanistan, and it has once again become an extremely dangerous place to be a woman. So firstly, Azadar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. The current situation in Afghanistan is completely devastating, and our listeners won't need too much of a recap. But for anyone listening at home, can you just let us know a little bit about what's happened in Kabul in the last few days? Yeah, right. As you said, the situation is a complete disaster and it's, uh, Afghanistan is once again descending into a chaos. Uh, the Taliban fighters uh, entered Kabul on Monday, as you mentioned, and then uh, very swiftly in the past few days, in the past one week, they managed to um, capture the major cities of Afghanistan, for example, uh, Herat. Uh, Mazar Sharif in the north, which are major uh, cities in resistance against the Taliban. And on Monday, they uh, very swiftly, without fighting, entered Kabul. And then uh, the president of Afghanistan left the country. Um, in a statement, he mentioned that I'm leaving the country because I'm uh, trying to avoid blood, uh, bloodshed. But uh, Taliban has been uh, in Kabul for the since Monday, and uh, I, my friends and relatives in Kabul, um, uh, we are extremely devastating with the and horrified of what is going to happen. Although they uh, they have mentioned that they um, they uh, they are uh, so far are not going uh, doing anything major, but um, we we are very ironic and skeptical about um, how uh, this the things will unfold there. Um, we have footage from yesterday that um, a Taliban has going home to home and then searching for people who are working for the government, international organizations, foreign missions, and then arresting them. Um, also, I, uh, my friends and my relatives have been, and also other Afghan women have been uh, trying to destroy the documents, any evidences that they have been uh, studying uh, abroad or studying with, uh, with um, uh, foreign, uh, working with foreign missions or with the government of Afghanistan, which is extremely sad and and. <laughs> throwing Afghanistan backwards to another 100, 200 years. Oh, it's extremely, yeah, as you said, devastating and sad. And for those that you're in touch with um, in Kabul right now, uh, I mean, I can't even imagine what it must what it must be like, but what kind of stories or reports have you heard on the ground of, of people? Um, do they fear for their immediate safety? Are they immediately, are their needs being taken care of? How are they, how are they surviving kind of hour to hour? Yeah, I have a lot of uh, stories from my uh, very close friends who we work together in the offices and also my relatives, like my, my uncle. But um, I probably will not be able to disclose a lot of intimate or uh, very um, poor safety. But uh, um, there's a footage of an Afghan uh, film, um, the head of uh, Afghan um, Film Commission. She she was extremely uh, horrified walking on the street saying that there are no women, uh, like within a few hours, all women uh, in the streets are disappeared. And now you see that the, uh, the, the, the dress code changed. Like before, we were wearing jeans, and before, before we had a very uh, traditional, not very too strict hijab. Now you see that uh, everybody, like, you don't see any women, uh, like, first to start with in the streets. But then if you see that they're, they're wearing uh, extremely heavy hijabs and everything. Um, they're horrified. They haven't left the house. A lot of, of my friends, um, I can't unfortunately uh, go into details because of their safety, but a lot of my friends are now in hiding. Um, they have been uh, keeping really low profile. They have left their houses. They're living in another secure places just so uh, even their parents don't know where they are because, uh, you know, under the pressure they could be revealed. 
and then um, they're living in hiding and uh, they, they don't disclose their whereabouts. And they, um, within hours of, on Monday, on Tuesday, I woke up and I saw that half of my friends from Afghanistan and social media, are like they have deactivated their accounts uh, or the ones who are staying behind, they have changed their, their pictures just to save or their, their names just to save themselves from uh, the retaliation of Taliban. And uh, uh, the former people who used to work with the former um, the uh, Afghan government, I'm not even sure because things are happening so fast that I'm not even sure how to refer to the government of Afghanistan. Is it former or current? Yeah. So uh, even them, uh, they have uh, removed uh, everything that they have mentioned. Um, I had friends who used to do a lot of good campaigns for women's rights. They have removed all the cont- contents and very important stories uh, from across Afghanistan. So it's extremely, extremely horrifying for them and for us. Like we, we keep watching of what's happening. We keep going to our Twitter account, our Facebook, and everything access to my friends. I haven't been able to directly communicate my family, my relative, and my friends for the last 24 hours because I see the footage by one of the BBC um, 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 and journalists in Kabul saying that um, Taliban has been going home to house to house checking even the, the, um, the, their social media of the people and also their phones for, for finding evidences or that they are in touch with people abroad. And then because I'm campaigning for Afghanistan from here, I don't want to jeopardize their safety. So I haven't been able to write them. And I really, really just pray and hope that they're safe. Oh, my gosh. And I think that highlights what you just said also. The people that are living globally away from Afghanistan, but obviously with family and friends there who care and are so deeply affected by what's happening there now, what their what 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 their efforts look like outside of Afghanistan, and what kind of efforts have you seen? And I know you're campaigning and you're very active, but is there is there a lively community outside of Afghanistan right now that are that are trying to get that's trying to get humanitarian aid there or money or resources for people to flee um i'm just wondering what you've seen yeah yeah um uh, well as uh, as you know and the, the international community has left afghanistan and um uh, I'm not saying the international community had a responsibility, but but they had a responsibility to withdraw, especially the United States, responsibly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that you have seen the footages of the people in the airport and then how those people, those young two boys, fall from the plane. If they, they knew that they were safe back home, if they knew that they have a little bit of safety in Afghanistan, they wouldn't do that, which is very, very sad. Anyway, um, yeah, I think um, uh, what um, uh, I see online and what I see among my friends and also the people that approach me like yourself, like your radio, providing a platform to speak, I think these are in, in extremely helpful for us. Um, I have been, um, I am a member of a, a women ne- women's uh, lawyers network online. And then I see that every few hours there is an update and there's a post about how to rescue someone from uh, danger in Afghanistan, who to contact, what to contact. And then also a lot of fundraising charity um, um, uh, works are being uh, organized. And then people asking, how do we send money? People are approaching me, my international friends from all over the world. Um, I'm really grateful for them. They're approaching me that how they can help and, and then uh, what should they do um, if um, there's anything they could send money back for a lot of people. As you know, that the fighting started in the northern part of Afghanistan like uh, two weeks ago and in July. 
there are a lot of IDPs internal displaced people are right now in Kabul, so they're asking me. Um, uh, they're, they're extremely in need of uh, humanitarian assistance and, and funding for, for to survive. So they're asking how they'd be able to send money, and then we're trying to connect them to, uh, with uh, people who are organizing this fundraising. So I see those things, and, and my, my um, faith in humanity and my international friends and the international and, and the in the, just in the in the people restores that we are to, in this together. We're not alone. We're not left alone. That we are literally feeling right now in Afghanistan. That nobody is actually listening to us. We have a, a group like Taliban. Uh, I'm actually um, my, my, I'm studying terrorism, so I know that Taliban actually defines every definition of terrorism in the textbook. Uh, we're, we're just in, they are being imposed on us, but we have friends and we have uh, other people around us who are trying to help us. We're listening to our voice, voicing our concern, which is extremely happy. Uh, we, we are very gl- glad and grateful that we have that. And um, are Afghans at the moment, and especially those as you spoke about, people from in, in grassroots organisations that led campaigns for women's rights and that were a huge part of the last twenty years. Um, are they able to leave? What, what what are they able to do? How how are they able to survive? Yeah, um, I'm also very concerned about uh, uh, when we talk about women's rights in particular. I'm concerned generally about my country, but I'm concerned about the safe houses for women. Um, if uh, I will explain a little bit what safe houses are. In the past 20 years, as you mentioned, there's a lot of grassroots organizations with the support of international organizations working on women and, and um, uh, on women's rights. They have set up the safe houses or shelter houses for women, which means that a woman who doesn't have, uh, who are not safe back uh, at their home or they're in uh, danger, they actually cannot be um, stayed at the home and they have to take refuge somewhere. So these safe houses actually used to accommodate them, uh, provide them safety and shelter and food and, and fight for them, provide them with lawyers to fight their cases. Most of them were threatened by their husbands because Afghanistan is a very conservative country when it comes to, um, to women. And uh, those houses were repeatedly attacked by the Taliban, saying that those houses should be closed, those houses should be closed, because a lot of women who run to safety to those houses used to be subject to forced marriage coming from uh, Taliban-controlled regions in the past, Taliban-influenced regions in the past. And I'm now worried of what will happen to those women, what will happen to all those women who work. For example, we have uh, Afghanistan uh, Women's Network, which is an umbrella organization having... uh, uh, small representatives all over the country and very active and brave women used to work on those organizations and I'm definitely sure that because uh, Taliban so fast uh, managed to capture Kabul and Kabul government uh, collapsed they were still in the country and uh, I have no access to them. Last time I spoke with the director of the uh, Afghanistan Women's Network was uh, two weeks ago uh, 12th of August that I saw her on a conference that we were arranging with Monash. Unfortunately all footage of those conferences um, are now removed from the uh, social media Monash and um, uh, gender peace and security at Monash University to, in order to secure their safety, in order to not mm-hmm. in, in order not to put them at risk. But uh, I'm not really sure of what what's going on with them and what's happening with them right now. But I'm hundred percent sure that they're in the country right now. Oh, so as Adal, we we um, we come into the end of the show at the moment and. It's so painful because we could talk about this and we'd love to speak to you again because it's so important. But 
I know you're very vocal on Twitter and um, I've, I follow you on Twitter. There's heaps of information on your feed. But is there another way or any other ways that our listeners can keep up to date with this or anywhere that you would direct them for more information? Um, I think we um, 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 uh, the, the Twitter right now is the only um, base source, and BBC has been active, and there's two documentaries about uh, about Afghanistan just a few days before the Kabul fall. Like it, it came out on, on the weekend, uh, BBC documentary, and uh, um, also I'm going to share more more posts on my Twitter mm-hmm. um, about my friends who are who are uh, who are actively in touch with uh, with the journalists inside the country, with BBC journalists. I'm cha- I'm, I'm sharing their feeds. Um, I think uh, that's the only way I can, unfortunately. Yeah. And if it was before, I would have put them in touch with my friends who are also very vocal and speaking um, uh, on um, uh, with the international media. But unfortunately, in order to uh, not to jeopardize their security, I can't do that. Of course. Thank you so much, Azadar, for speaking with us Thank today. You. And hopefully Thank we can speak so to you again soon. Thank you, Alice. Thank you so much for providing me this platform. Thank you. Thank you. And for listeners at home, that was Azadar Raz Mohammed. Um, she writes for The Conversation. You can find her on there. Otherwise, you can find her on Twitter at, at Azadar, which is A-Z-A-D-A-H-R-M. Um, we can have a link to that Twitter on our, um, our Wednesday Breakfast page. And that is the end of the show today. Thank you for our guests. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.